It's Friday the 9th of October and you're very welcome to Westminster Watch. I'm Dermot Hudson from the Department of Politics at Birkbeck and I'm joined by my colleague Ben Worthy. In this podcast our aim is to look at issues in the news that are of relevance to students of British politics, particularly those on our undergraduate module Contemporary British Politics. As usual we have two issues to discuss this week and I hand over to Ben to discuss the first topic. Well, this week we take a look at the Privy Council, which has been in the news rather unusually over the past few days because of uh, Jeremy Corbyn's non-attendance to be sworn in. And for the last few days, the media have actually been discussing not only why he's not been sworn in currently, but also exactly what the Privy Council is. So, uh, what is it? Well, the first thing to say about the Privy Council is that it's very old. dates back to around 1250. And it deals with so-called orders in council, statutory instruments, and what's called the royal prerogative, which is a bit of uh, lawmaking left over to the monarch. It's a body of about 600 people, and it's an institution that, if you're a member of it, it gives you uh, the letters right honourable in front of your name. Um, Despite it having 600 members, it only meets in full on an announcement to marriage by a monarch or their death. Um, But it does have regular meetings where it does a variety of other things. Possibly the area that's of most interest to me and probably to everybody else is the secrecy surrounding the Privy Council and one of the necessary uh, kind of aspects to it is that when you join, you often uh, are allowed access to certain pieces of information that you wouldn't be uh, without it. There is a secrecy oath Um, and on joining the Privy Council you have to take the oath uh, which runs you will in all things to be moved, treated and debated in this council faithfully and truly declare your mind and opinion and will keep secret all matters committed and revealed unto you or that shall be treated of secretly in council so uh, I suppose my question to Dermot is does it matter? Is it important that there's this council that Jeremy Corbyn has not yet attended or or is it just like Roy Hattersley who's also a member said just a kind of boring and mundane body that doesn't really matter I guess it's a kind of residual body of British politics that many of the now established more transparent more familiar bodies have grown out of so one example is the old Department of Trade and Industry, which began as a committee of this Privy Council before gradually emerging into a Department of State. So it's, And in that sense, I think it's something to be relatively relaxed about. And I think there's a reason why we don't look at this very often as students of British politics. On another level, I think it's pretty problematic to have such a secretive body um, playing this role, however symbolic, um, on hiring, uh, one thing I checked when this body came into the news was how broad its membership was. Obviously, you mentioned 800 people, which sounds like it's very inclusive in terms of you know current and former uh, ministers, but there's some kind of interesting absentees from this list. Um, when I looked at the representatives from Northern Ireland, um, there's a clear, uh, overwhelming unionist bias. bias. So you have people like um, David Trimble, now Lord Trimble, a member of this, but you don't have anyone uh, from the nationalist community. There's a, yeah, I think I agree that, that there's this simultaneously, it's not important, but it is important at the same time. I wonder if there's a similar issue to that of uh, honours, where it's actually difficult to find out if somebody has been offered 
and honour and whether they've refused it. A few years ago, I think The Guardian published a list of people who they could find out had refused honours, and it would be interesting to know if people have refused membership of the Privy Council. I think looking over the minutes of the recent meetings, um, it isn't the most scintillating body, and the things that they do, a lot of them are statutory instruments and relatively minor issues around £5 coins, £1 coins, commemorative coins, and there's amendments to all sorts of uh, different pieces of legislation, such as the St Helena Act of 1833. I suppose looking at it on the other point of view, and someone who, who deals in transparency, it has been claimed that access to the Privy Council automatically means that you do get more access to more higher level classified information, not necessarily to do with your duties in the body, but simply because you are a member of the body and have uh, taken this oath of secrecy. So it does matter there. And like you say, it also matters about the hidden power of undemocratic parts of the Constitution. As you probably know, um, the monarch and the heir were taken out of the remit of the Freedom of Information Act in 2010 by the Labour government, although for reasons I'm not sure, the media seems to have blamed David Cameron for this. Um, and it is interesting that this remains a part that's insulated uh, from the public gaze. So even though what it seems they're doing doesn't matter, there's also a point of principle and also a point at which if you are a membership of a body that gives you access to certain types of information, then that body is itself quite important. And how much significance do you attach to the oath? I mean, there's a, if you look at the website, and it has a website these days, the Privy Council, run from the Cabinet Office, um, it says that, which is kind of unusual language for a website, it says, we're often seen as an ex- excessively secretive body, but that's just because of our, our oath, which is a bit old-fashioned. Um, what's your sense of um, the scope, perhaps, for shining more light on something like this oath and the potential maybe for reform and do you get any sense that Corbyn could whether um, deliberately or not set in motion a debate about um, whether there could be reforms to this particular body I wonder whether the secrecy aspect is a bit like the Official Secrets Act was for a long time even though the Official Secrets Act wasn't a very good piece of law in terms of prosecuting people for breaking secrecy law what it did do was through its symbolism and attachment uh, to the issue of national security it worked to keep people quiet just by its existence rather than by being used to prosecute people and you wonder whether the oath because of its attachment to the monarchy and its sheer kind of symbolism breaking the oath wouldn't land you in prison but it wouldn't make you look like rather a bad person but there is some scope as I understand it for Corbyn not to take the oath in person, but to still become a member of the Privy Council. Yeah. And that could be an interesting test. And of course, we've been here before with oaths. Part of the history of um, Irish independence was coming to terms with an oath after um, Ireland was uh, created in the form of a free state in the 1920s. There was a bloody civil war in Ireland over the idea of taking an oath to the Queen. And after much bloodshed, they came to the conclusion that actually the oath didn't matter so much Um, when you didn't attach it meaning. It's very interesting, just as a final thought, about how the uh, British Constitution works. Um, And the fact that these principles are important unless they aren't. So things like collective cabinet secrecy is important, except that everybody leaks. Yeah. And so we've got to be careful that these oaths and these, these 
commitments and these principles within the constitution are useful and used so long as they're politically kind of necessary, but they can also be gotten around when they're not. So our second issue brings us from the challenges of having an unwritten constitution to one that's perhaps been overwritten over the years, which is the European uh, Union and its um, quasi-constitutional basis in treaties. In 2013, David Cameron promised to have an in-out referendum on UK membership after having renegotiated Britain's membership of the European Union, perhaps through a reform of the treaties. And once the Conservatives won the election earlier this year, there was a commitment made to have this referendum by 2017 at the latest. We had the Conservative Party conference this week and all eyes were on David Cameron and members of his cabinet to try and get a sense of how far these renegotiation talks have um, um, have, have uh, proceeded and where we're at in relation to those renego- renegotiation talks. And we learned virtually nothing. You know, politics is the study of explaining what we see. It's also about explaining what we don't see uh, sometimes. And what we didn't see this week was any commitment on the part of Cameron to play his hand really over what the nature of these negotiations were and when a referendum might be. Now, this came as a bit of a surprise to me because my expectation was that he might use the campaign speech to announce the referendum taking place in either June 2016 or October. Instead, he offered us one short passage on the European Union in his speech, which added up to very, very little. If you go back to last year's speech, there was a lot more detail. There was a discussion of migration and free movement and how Cameron was setting out his red lines on how we would have to get a deal in this country to somehow limit the, perhaps not the freedom of movement for people to come from other EU member states and work here, but their benefit entitlements. No reference to that in the passage on Europe. Instead, just a vague reference to the fact that his new red line is that we must have some language on the fact that Britain doesn't subscribe to this principle of ever closer union. What is this principle of ever closer union? It's a reference and a preamble to the EU's treaties. We can debate its legal significance, but the political significance of it is that it would be, I think, comparatively straightforward to change and relatively limited in its political meaning. In a sense, this reference to ever closer union stands as a crude proxy for the lack of understanding in this country over how the European Union works. It's, it's a kind of placeholder for the assumption that Britain stands alone against the federalist hordes in other EU member states. Um, when the EU doesn't work like that, the EU, I mean, as I see it, would be a quite intergovernmental organisation in which member states act uh, in terms of their national interests and cooperate when those national interests overlap. This idea that Britain needs special language on ever closer union is well thought out, no doubt, by Cameron, but in a sense shows just how shallow these negotiations have become. Um, And the fact that he had to place emphasis on this pretty vague principle with limited political meaning raises the question of what are they actually discussing in these ongoing negotiations? Are they going to add up to very much... um, is Cameron at all prepared for this referendum? Ben, any thoughts on the European question? Well, it's 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 fascinating. Fascinating because it's not being talked about. And it is the single issue that's going to define David Cameron's legacy and perhaps you know the future of the UK for, for, for decades to come. Um, 
I've been looking at the House of Lords library note, which is uh, busy tracking the progress of the EU referendum bill. And it's I've, a short note, right? Yes, and I've tried to read between the lines there about some of the interesting things that have been going on in Parliament that have been similarly unreported. So trying to deduce the date for this, we can definitely say it's not going to be May 2016, and we can definitely say it's not going to be May 2017. So we can, we can book holidays for those two months. But apart from that, the, the, the legislation in its current form specifies that it will be before the end of 2017. What's the significance of May 2016? Uh, it was a promise by Cameron not to hold the referendum at the same time as the Holyrood elections or, uh, I think, local government elections as well. So there was concern, particularly from Eurosceptics, that the dates would be um, mixed in because often they hold referendums on the same day as an election over turnout. And there was a promise from Cameron that that won't happen. The bill was amended over that. The uh, library note, which I strongly recommend anybody read, is fascinating on the debates that have already been taking place about um, whether 16, 17-year-olds could vote, whether EU nationals living in the UK could vote, which they can't, and there's 1.5 million of them who could have been quite an interesting uh, voting block. And there's also interesting research from a Scottish referendum on where they think people will get most of their information about the referendum. And uh, the House of Lords Library uh, points to two sources as being crucial, which is the mainstream media and uh, the internet as the two major sources. Bridget Laffin, who is a, an Irish scholar of European integration based at the European Union University Institute and someone who was heavily involved in Ireland's referendum campaigns over the year, often says when she speaks about um, this topic that political parties are not geared towards referendums. You know, that they're too... Uh, um, kind of, you know, political phenomenon that are surprisingly unconnected. Political parties are organisations created to fight general elections. And I, I think of Bridget Laffin's point when I see how the no campaign is gearing up. It's establishing what would seem to be organisations every week, not particularly unified, but certainly well-funded. And um, We saw a number of these organisations started this week with a degree of cross-party support. Whereas the main political parties in this country have not even really begun to mobilise an operation in support of this uh, uh, um, referendum, the assumption being that they will, of course, at least at the level of leadership, want to campaign to stay in the European Union. Now, what's, what's going on there? I guess in the case of Cameron, he has on some level tied his own hands to these renegotiations because his premise, his political premise was that I wouldn't particularly want to stay in the European Union as it is, so I'm going to change it. Now, the EU changes all the time, and reform initiatives have varying degrees of success. There's a school of thought that says the EU tries to reform too much and doesn't allow its reforms to bed in. But as I've already said, Cameron's renegotiation uh, approach seems very, very thin. He is not going to fundamentally change the European Union, yet... He needs to wait for this political process that he has created to play out. And that means he cannot himself campaign for um, anything like Britain's place in the European Union until these negotiations are concluded. He tested out a few lines in his speech this week, which was to say, I'm not romantically involved with the European Union or wherever he put it. You know, he's not a great fan <laughs> of the European Union. Again, the implication being that foreigners somehow are. But he said that... Britain's influence in Europe is clear on things like EU diplomacy towards Iran, 
think partly true, and that British influence is there in relation to, say, beginning negotiations of a trade deal with the US, also, I think, uh, true to a significant extent. So he's, he's testing the water with some of these arguments, but he's basically constrained himself because of these negotiations. Of course, the no camp are not waiting on the, the results of these renegotiations. They're saying that um, um, these rene- renegotiations won't add up to much, so they feel confident and empowered to start creating um, their own kind of um, political narrative to bolster the no campaign. That's already playing out, so it's very, very one-sided. Just to make um, David Cameron's birthday even less uncomfortable. No, I believe he's spending the day with Angela Merkel today, is that right? Okay, that's good to me. Um, I think what's really interesting from your point is that political parties aren't designed for referendums and the fascinating data in the uh, House of Lords library note is also that voting doesn't reflect party lines either. There's some fascinating research. Okay, you can imagine broadly how UKIP voters will vote in the EU referendum, but actually Labour voters and Conservative voters can break in all sorts of different directions. So what we're also seeing is parties where leaders may not be able to influence their own voters in the direction that they want as well. So it's going to be extremely interesting, but extremely uncertain, even trying to poll people's um, views and ideas. Right, and speaking of the polls they are not looking good for the yes side. There was a lot of complacency before the summer where the yes side seemed to have had a large lead, uh, about 60% of people saying, in in some polls at least, that they would vote to stay in the European Union. And that um, support seems to have really collapsed over the summer. The latest poll that I've seen um, on the Telegraph website puts the um, yes side at around 45% with the... the, um, um, the no campaign around 38%. Before the summer, we were saying how the no camp was in disarray because of divisions in UKIP, because of um, really a lack of um, clear arguments that they might mobilise. That has been completely reversed now. The no side are gearing up and the yes side seem very, very fractured. This is not just a conservative issue. Labour have spent a long time thinking about where they're going to line up in this debate. Jeremy Corbyn was asked whether he would vote to stay in the European Union under all circumstances. He thought about it for a good three days and then said, with no degree of enthusiasm, that he probably would and that there's no real sense in which he would campaign um, to leave, which I think he did in 1975, by the way. Um, Obviously, the SNP uh, would be a very pro-European voice in this country. They are not going to line up with either Labour or the Tories. It's completely fragmented. My sense is that you'll get multiple yes um, campaigns. We have multiple no campaigns. It's going to be a very fragmented referendum. Um, But I think the yes side at this stage should be worried looking at those numbers. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Ben. Stay tuned for more Westminster Watch.